what was revelatory to me was what was missing, how this organization provided what was missing and still is missing in minority lives as a result of their training and, a, and as a result of their experiences in the profession. On the one hand, that's a damning statement for the profession. On the other, it says we still have a lot of work to do. When I was sitting in the audience and on the panel, I suddenly realized, you know, when I go back to my alma mater, I'm in the majority. When I have an alumni reception, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I know you. I know. <laughs> but NVBMA has members of your alma mater that are in the minority and only share with their classmates and other alums in the veterinary training perspective, not necessarily in the social perspective. And they don't necessarily feel as if they fully belong. And that's where inclusion comes in. This is the embodiment of inclusion here. And in some cases, we have to reach out, as you said, for religious reasons. If, if, if there's nobody in the State Veterinary Association that has the same religious belief, then I'm going to go to a different church in order to reaffirm those beliefs. Welcome to Peter and Phil's Courageous Conversations, a podcast addressing race relations and social issues in hopes that you'll be inspired to do the same. Now, let's begin our conversation with your hosts, Dr. Peter Weinstein and Dr. Philip Nelson. Hey, Phil. Good to see you again. It's been a couple of weeks. Last time we uh, shared some time with our kids. Now we get to be alone again, which means we can say what we want. Uh-oh. Um, yeah, uh-oh is right. I want to remember to thank Nationwide for their support for our, our podcasts and support of the veterinary profession and ask you how, what was it that was in Ohio State last week? Besides Juneteenth, it was the National Association of Black Veterinarians meeting. You were at, at a meeting last week. Was it the NABV? Is that what you were at? Yeah, that was it. They they invited all of the African-American deans that were either presently serving or have served, five of us, including one that is about to be announced, uh, Dr. Carla Gartrell, former student of mine, who will take on the dean's position at Midwestern oh. uh, starting, starting July 1st. Um, Dr. Reed could not be there, but uh, Dr. Blackwell, Dr. Perry, myself, and Dr. Gartrell were there. It was a great meeting. Uh, I developed a perspective that I don't think I had developed before. It, it, it's more from a historical perspective. You know, I've been working in the area of what, what we now call DEI. I simply called equitable access and equitable participation. I was fighting for, for the entire spectrum of, of uh, demographic. But I now realized that I, even I had developed a myopia in that 98% of African-American veterinarians were being produced by Tuskegee. And being a Tuskegee alum, I think inherently I was fighting as much for the participation of Tuskegee alums, more specifically, as I was for open participation for anybody who becomes a veterinarian. But there was a sensitivity that I failed to understand and did not know uh, when the, the National Association of Black Veterinarians was started. I wasn't quite sure of the full need for such, a, such an association, probably because of hubris and, because, and probably because I thought Tuskegee was, was doing a pretty good job fighting for it. But what I didn't recognize was is that as we became successful in changing the 
the views and the actions of majority schools. More and more African-Americans are graduating from majority schools. You and I keep talk, keep going back and forth about how things don't change, haven't changed, but, and yet to see a, a room full of African-American veterinarians, and, and by the way, it was a diverse attendance, but of the African-American veterinarians that were there, which was the predominant demographic, Tuskegee graduates may have numbered in the minority. It may have been a slight minority, but, and I don't know the numbers, but my estimate was it was at least 50% from majority schools. And I may be a little off there, but, but that was gratifying to me. That was a reflection of the, of the success we've had, although that success was over 30 years. And the fact that I still have to guess as to how many were from majority schools is still sad, but I understood the need for the organization. I'm always saying that this isn't about race. This is about human beings and human beings need to belong. We're just like cattle. We, we move in herds, we live in herds. And for this generation and for the generation who, where the doors began to open and they took advantage of those doors and went to Ohio State and Cornell and LSU and other colleges other than Tuskegee, there are many reasons why they went. Some of them because of the scholarship that were offered them. Some of them because they were in their home state and they could finance it better. But whatever the reason, when they graduated, they were alum of that institution. And it is natural to want to be loyal to your alma mater, despite how you're being treated, despite how the, the experience you have. Usually that just changes into, I want to change that. That's what I, I even did that with Tuskegee. I was in that, I went to academia because I wanted to improve their academic approach and they deserve that opportunity. And so Tuskegee's fig leaf uh, of, of being the universal adoptee of African-American veterinarians isn't good enough for that because it gets complicated because then they must show some loyalties to Tuskegee as opposed to recognition to what Tuskegee, to the importance of Tuskegee in our uh, racial heritage. And that was eye-awakening for me. I was also proud to see the impact of the work of, of my forefathers that fought for this. I think of Dr. Bowie, who was a former dean, who's deceased, and Dr. T.S. Williams, who is a former dean, and Dr. Foster, who was the founding dean of Tuskegee. I think all of them would have would have been satisfied with the accomplishments, not necessarily the rate of progress, but the accomplishments at this point where we're beginning to stand on our own and fulfill our own needs in the spirit that they had to, but but adapting to today's environment. And so for me it was a it was a very rewarding experience. And an enlightening experience, one that will rejuvenate my intention to continue to work to further expand participation for all, for the entire spectrum of veterinarians. But it also made me a much more stronger supporter of the organization. There was an interesting session. They had a dean's panel. And um, I think it was probably the first time that all the deans, except for Dr. Reed, were, were on an open panel to discuss their experiences preparing for administration and their experiences as deans um, of, of a college. Well, you know, you, you made a comment partway through 
about the need to belong and herd animals, or like cows, I think you used. But I think that's it's reflected in all sorts of different things in, in our lives. So I went to Cornell undergrad. They didn't want me for vet school. Well, they may have wanted me, but they didn't let me know that. And so when I moved to Illinois and became an alum of the veterinary school at Illinois, I became much more endeared to the University of Illinois for its willingness to accept me into the veterinary curriculum and to allow me to graduate. Maybe I shouldn't say allow, <laughs> but <laughs> so it, it, and from a support standpoint, I financially, as well as time and others, am much more supportive of my relationship and belonging to my alumni association from the University of Illinois, and much less engaged with that at Cornell. And we have other organizations that we become involved with as veterinarians, uh, uh, you know, local, state, state, local, national associations, and, and other representative associations. But we also have a need to belong, and that's why we join a religious group, a church, or a synagogue, and maybe even political reasons to belong, and, and all of these different things. And so I think your comment about needing to belong and then supporting those organizations and being pleased to see the outcomes of the work that was done in those organizations that you have been a part of is something that I, I think maybe we don't do enough of in terms of communicating that to our, our colleagues or our, our students um, or even others. I think COVID for the last two years made it much more difficult to be in a group and feel like you belonged. And I think some of the transition over the last few months as we've kind of tried to move back into a more semblance of normalcy um, has been very beneficial in getting people more involved and wanting to be a part of belonging. So I, I think your message from last week's meeting about belonging is probably a universal message. And I think the feeling of belonging and the outcomes from being a part of an organization or university and being proud of that outcome is, is very appropriate. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, as you were talking, and I'll, I'll try to take it backwards and hope I can remember the, where you started. The impact of COVID, I think, you know, uh, even though it's, it's, it's much more recent and much more intense in our minds, it was only two years, well, so far, uh, compared to a hundred year history or a 200 year history of racial discord. And it, that's just a blip in its impact. I do agree that that intense two years has shown us just how much herd animals we are in general. And it does underscore the universality of the need to belong. But on this particular topic, I, I think I, I tend to focus more on the universality of that need to belong, even in as you said, areas that I don't necessarily think about. You know, when we say we're herd animals, you know, and that's a very crude comparison, you know, they get together primarily for defense and they don't necessarily sub-aggregate according to breed of cows or whether they like fescue versus uh, some, some other grass. There don't appear to be any political divisions that, that we make that for. You know, we make those choices about. Only human beings do that. And what was revelatory to me was what was missing, how this organization 
provided what was missing and still is missing in minority lives as a result of their training and, a, and as a result of their experiences in the profession. On the one hand, that's a damning statement for the profession. On the other, it says we still have a lot of work to do. When I was sitting in the audience and on the panel, I suddenly realized, you know, when I go back to my alma mater, I'm in the majority. When I have an alumni reception, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I know you. I know. <laughs> but NVBMA has members of your alma mater that are in the minority and only share with their classmates and other alums in the veterinary training perspective, not necessarily in the social perspective. And they don't necessarily feel as if they fully belong. And that's where inclusion comes in. This is the embodiment of inclusion here. And in some cases, we have to reach out, as you said, for religious reasons. If, if, if there's nobody in the State Veterinary Association that has the same religious belief, then I'm going to go to a different church in order to reaffirm those beliefs. One of the things that I, I want to just tie some things together, though, is if the meeting had been virtual, not in person, it may not have had the same impact because you wouldn't be in the same room. I agree. And so since pre-COVID, when this meeting was held face-to-face, -face, through COVID, through George Floyd, through the increasing awareness of DEI, and now coming together in a face-to-face, -face, there's something really impactful about the observations and, and people absorbing things together. And so I, I think, um, being physically together and the conversations are much different, they're much deeper. I think a lot of the, the impact that you, and I'm not putting things in your head, but um, a lot of the impact that came from last week's meeting came from the fact that you are in the group with people able to physically discuss things, being more authentic, more vulnerable than you could have been in a virtual setting. And I think that's so important going forward. And it, and it ties into what we've been doing for two years in terms of communication, because live communication, and even though we're virtual, um, it's still live. Live communication face-to-face -face is much more organic than it is when it's virtual. Um, I'm going to let you make your point. I disagree in terms of why the observation was so poignant to me. I did not come to this point of observation as a result of in-depth discussions as much because actually when it came, when it happened, I was actually on stage myself. And I got a feeling it probably could have happened even in Zoom. But I don't deny that it was a much more personal, a much more impactful experience because it was in person. I don't deny that at all. But for me, it doesn't matter that much if that's the case. I definitely agree that we appreciated being, being together as opposed to the uh, environmental constraints of the pandemic compared to the pre-pandemic. I guess you're querying whether it would have been as impactful in a virtual nature as it was in the real face. And I just and, and I think I've admitted three times that yeah. no, it, okay. it wouldn't have been. But the point to me, that's more important. Whether the epiphany became came as a result of personal interaction or because of the content of the discussion itself, 
which led me to re recognize the need. The important part is, is that we, we understand the need to belong, that we understand that even that can be differentiated, that even that, and, and so I actually began to realize that when I go to my alumni associations at Tuskegee, my, my alumni events at Tuskegee, most alumni events, everybody talks about what their teachers did to them or what their, or the conditions they had to study under or how much sleep they lost. But some things minority graduates can't share at those meetings about the time a teacher for, forgot their name or, or never got their name right because it was Africanized or the time the teacher had two Bettys, one was black and one was white. And he called the white Betty, Betty, and the black Betty, black Betty, without understanding the impact of, of that microaggression, if you will. So you can't share that with the class because it's embarrassing. And because your classmates still don't see why you got upset about it. They still think it was just a minor plaything, and that, you know, it has nothing to do with them not knowing you or not record because they def the teacher definitely knew you after you got upset and, and angry about it. And so the need for an organization where you can talk about this freely that understands what you're putting. And, and, and as a matter of fact, now that you've graduated and moved to your state, gotten married, gotten children, have a practice, and you are a member of the state VMA, you may even be a board member or a president, but you're still going through the same things. You know, people still remind you that the only reason you're a veterinarian is because you took somebody's place. I've had people tell me that and didn't know I graduated from Tuskegee. And then have the hubris to say, oh, well, okay, I guess you deserved, you deserved your spot. As if that's the only place that I had a spot reserved for me. This uh, concept of needing to belong, it, it, I mean, it goes along with the term inclusion, doesn't it? That's exactly what I was trying to say. Exactly. This is the embodiment of inclusion. Right. And I think what we as a profession, and, and not just as a veterinary profession, but we as a, a human body, the global human need to make and be more consciously inclusive. Yes. And at the same time, we need to have enough grace to realize that there may be a significant need that is addressed by an organization or a group of people that only talk about that particular need. Absolutely. Your discussion of the talk in your group is different than the discussion of the talk <laughs> in, in my group. Yeah. Yeah, although there is no organization on how to give a talk <laughs> in either group. No, there really is. <laughs> I'm, I'm, we, we probably need to find a YouTube video because uh, there's probably one out there that somebody, but you know, at, at the same time, inclusion also leads to curiosity, doesn't it? Yes. And, and I think that's a good thing. And I think those people that maybe are not inclusive lack that curiosity well they um, actually they definitely lack the opportunity to broaden their horizons right so we we really do need to to be more consciously inclusive obviously in the veterinary profession i want to ask you about some numbers in just a minute but more globally there's some mutual responsibility to be inclusive and and learn 
and I think that that makes all the cows in the herd much more comfortable and much more like real cows where they don't care if you're a Holstein or a Brown Swiss or a Guernsey, you all can sit out and chew on all the hay that you want. Nobody really cares. Yeah. So as you look at the numbers, are we at 50% graduates from Tuskegee that are black and 50% graduates from all of the other veterinary schools that are black? Do you have a clue where those numbers are at this point? Oh no, Tuskegee still, still far and away. Uh, overwhelms uh, African-American graduates, okay. even though the numbers have been cut in half, the percentages have not. And Tuskegee still produces. So, so look at it this way. In every class, let's say the first year class of the 32 accredited schools in the United States, right. in the 32 majority schools, mm -hmm. the average number of African-Americans in each of those classes may be two. Okay, so 64. 64. Right. And I believe Tuskegee has a class of, let's say it's still 45. Okay. I think it's more than that. And 50% of them are African-American. Okay. And another 10 to 15% are of African origin, but not necessarily African-American. So you have 30 to 40 mm -hmm. coming from Tuskegee. Right. So it's still a, it's still a, a, at least in the class that just was admitted for fall of 2022, Tuskegee still as a group is 50% or more of the matriculating people of color yes. are, are coming through Tuskegee. And we hadn't, we didn't even talk about Hispanics right, or, mm -hmm. other, or other demographics. And that also underscores the need for the NVBMA, because if I graduated in 2012 from Ohio State, and I was one of two people who graduated in my class, when I go back to the alumni, I might see seven or eight alum African-Americans alumni, depending on how long they've been taking African-Americans, right? But we didn't have the same, we, we may have had the same racial experiences, but we didn't have the same experiences because we graduated at different times. So I've got even a smaller cadre of people to link up with that might have had like experience. And I'm sure every one of those schools has a black chapter. Well, actually, what they usually have is at North Carolina State, there's a there's a North Carolina State Black Alumni Association. They don't have enough black vet school graduates to have a vet chapter. The, the state also has a North Carolina Black VMA by people who are from, again, predominantly from Tuskegee, who happen to live in North Carolina. And so as North Carolina Black graduates graduate, they can join that. And, and the same thing happens at, in, in, in a lot of the states. Again, a response to the need to belong. Thank you for joining us for another Courageous Conversation. Be sure to follow us and check back next week for more.